Hey everyone, this is Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. For this episode, I'm talking with Turi Munte. Turi is a journalist and entrepreneur. After founding and then exiting the largest network of photojournalists in the world, he launched Parlia, the Encyclopedia of Opinion. Parlia is, in my opinion, one of the most exciting and important projects today. Turi and I discuss why he started Parlia, the value of opinions versus facts, what media is doing to the public discourse, and much, much more. I'm very excited about today's conversation. So without further ado, I give you Turi Munde. Enjoy. Welcome, Turi, to the podcast. By way of introduction, uh, why don't we start with Parlia? So, what is Parlia and why now? Gons, first off, great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to talk. Um, now to the question, why Parlia? Well, Parlia, let's just let's set out what it is. Parlia is this crazy, very ambitious, possibly hubristic idea to build a giant encyclopedia of all the opinions about everything. So the first question is, is not why Palia, but is Palia even possible, right? And, and it's the answer to that question which leads to the why. So in 2016, I was sitting in the UK, we had the build up to the Brexit referendum. I had cousins in the US looking at a vote, the presidential election there. My wife is Italian, there was a big constitutional referendum in Italy. And all three of those electoral decisions went the surprising way, right? Britain left the European Union, Donald Trump was elected, and in Italy, where my wife is from, uh, Matteo Renzi lost his constitutional referendum. 2016 was the year in which political consensus blew, except of course it wasn't, right? The, the political consensus has been shattering for some time now. Maybe we trace it back to 2008 and the response to, to the crisis then, all this money going to the bankers, not enough going to the workers. Goodness knows. And there are lots of different things to talk about. Maybe it's the rise of China, which has given the West a, a sort of a, an identity complex. Maybe it's, who knows what it is. But 2016 was therefore not the year in which political consensus broke. It's the year where we, at least I, realized that it had broken. And that's fascinating because, well, for a start, maybe political consensus isn't such a good thing. You know, we had, ever since the end of the Cold War, we've been living in this quite nice bubble in the West, assuming that we'd won the argument that the liberal system was the dominant system for the future and would take over the rest of the world. Fukuyama wrote that fabulous article and book, The, the End of History, talking about some of the fact that the big debates about the way the world should be had been won. And we came up with a sort of political consensus approach. Maybe it's Tony Blair, maybe it's Gerhard Schroeder in, the, in, in, in Europe. Maybe it's sort of the, the Clinton-like with a little hint of that sort of centrist free market on the one hand, socially progressive on the other. We thought we had the system wrapped. Turns out that did not work for an enormous number of people. And, and therefore watching the fallout from globalization, deeply unequal fallout from globalization, the fallout from autom automation, the fallout from climate change, we're dealing with massive systemic challenges. And we had a simple, single system for dealing with them and it turns out it wasn't working. So actually political consensus is probably a terrible thing. Let's get all these ideas out there. 
because we need nuance to figure out what we're going to do, how, how to deal with all this. So 2016, wonderful. We start seeing that the world is multifaceted and is no longer the shape that we thought. But the one thing that I, I think was very, very obvious in the UK with Brexit, and was also screamingly obvious in the US with the election of Donald Trump, is that these multiple different sides found it remarkably difficult to hear each other, to listen to each other, to even really acknowledge that the other side was human. And that does not, that does not bode well for democracy, for our, the process of building you know, consensus, the process of building consensus around our project, around what the states should look like, how, what our values should be, etc. So there's a big question that floats around a lot of our heads in 2016, which is, ah, this is a bit of a surprise, but also how do we talk to each other? How do we start, how do we stop um, dehumanizing the various other sides, the sides of disagreements? So I'm, like lots of people, I start thinking about that then. And then the other thing that happens in 2016 is that in the build-up to Brexit, we must have spilt in the UK. I mean, I've done back-of-the-envelope calculations. I mean, surely a trillion words were spilt on Brexit, on TV, in the newspapers, in pubs, over lunch, <laughs> etc. Um, and, and at a certain point, I realized that I'd had all the arguments. I'd, I'd heard all of them. I'd heard them all, and I, they were, I was just repeating them. So it suddenly sort of hit me. I started asking myself whether there was, in fact, a, a limited number of arguments around Brexit. And the answer is yes. So you could, if you'd ask anybody in the UK who read a newspaper over that period to name the three or four reasons that people wanted to leave and the three or four reasons that people wanted to remain, they'd do it in four minutes. And those big buckets of ideas, you know, whether it's economic sovereignty or economic unity or whether it's you know, safety in scale or safety as an independent nation, etc., we could have mapped out the opinions on Brexit really fast. All of us could have done it. And yet the media was spilling all these words, this, that, this opinion, that opinion, etc. And it suddenly hit me that there was in fact a really limited number of opinions about Brexit. And if there's a limited number of opinions about Brexit, I thought, well, maybe that's the same is true for everything, for points of view on abortion, points of view on euthanasia, points of view on responses to climate change, whether sex education should be taught in schools, uh, through to, you know, whether Cristiano Ronaldo or, or Lionel Messi uh, is the better footballer. I know you're Argentinian, so we know there is one answer to that question. But so from the, from, the, from the ridiculous, like Brexit, to the sublime, like football, there's a limited number of arguments on everything. And if there's a limited number of arguments on everything, you can map them. And so that's what we're trying to do. So what Palia is trying to do is to map all the opinions <laughs> about everything in a Wikipedia of, of arguments, a Wikipedia of opinions. So um, that's a very long-winded answer to your why Palia and why now. But I think to just to, to, to hit the nail, hopefully a little bit more precisely on the head, why now? Because I think we are, and all the statistics point to this as well, we are at our most polarized in a generation. We've never been more polarized. You look at um, the research coming out of Pew in the US, which does a huge amount of, of, of research on this, and we're seeing deep polarization across a number of different areas. What's happening is that people's voting tendencies are starting to align much, much more with all the other tendencies that they've had, demography, age, race, religion, et cetera. So there is a sort of fracturing of the political space into ever hardening bubbles, 
boxes, tribes, whatever you want to call them. And that's bad. We want lots of new ideas, but we want real fluidity between them. What we don't want is these warring factions, incapable of hearing each other. And so Palia is trying to do two things. One, build this knowledge, this knowledge project, right? The huge encyclopedia of ideas is a beautiful thing. But two, what we hope is that that also has an impact on the ways in which we listen to each other. A remarkable thing to me that you said is now it's a lot easier to predict what you believe based on who you are. So if you're a Democrat, for instance, I can predict or probably predict where you are in terms of abortion, universal basic income and everything. So this is sort of leading to my question on how would you describe why building barley is important? I think I understand you on a rational level, and I've been trying to articulate it before this conversation, but it's been, it's been hard so far, and this is what I have to accelerate conversations and public discourse and to help people figure out where they stand and how to talk to the other side. Yeah, that's... To, so to reiterate, yes. Why do we want to build Palia? Because it's a beautiful thing and beautiful things should exist in the world and an encyclopedia of ideas is, is beautiful. This is when my, my, my rabbi hat comes on. I feel like, nah, thought itself is a glorious thing and needs, and needs catalogs. So that's one. And then of course, in terms of polarization and in terms of discourse, yes. Well, let me give you a, let me give you a horrible example. Back when we went under lockdown, there was a school shooting every week in the US. It's one of the horrible facts of lockdown is that there, have never, there has not been this long length of time without a school shooting ever in the history of the U.S. in the last 20, 30 years, whatever it is. But every time there was a school shooting in the U.S., you'd look at Twitter and it would light up like a Christmas tree. You'd have the gun rights people on the one hand screaming at the gun control people on the other. And these are arguments and opinions and positions we've heard before because we heard them the last time there was a school shooting and the time before. The conversation is not moving on. Why? And the reason that conversation is not moving on is because it's remarkably difficult to listen to the other side of an argument when it's being screamed at you. So we harden into our positions. You tell me that gun control is the only thing that matters and it's going to save lives and I'll, I will scream at you that it's my constitutional right to carry weapons. We end up hardening into those tribes. So what we're hoping with Palia is that once you've articulated the argument for gun control, and you've articulated the arguments for gun rights, you've done it forever. They're there, you've seen them. Hopefully what that does is it allows you to take the conversation to the next level, which is, okay, so you believe in gun rights from a constitutional perspective, great. Okay, but look, there are many examples in which from a constitution, the constitution has been amended because of it. So you see what I'm saying? You could just, we can advance the conversation slowly if the base positions have been established already. So that's one. The other thing that we're trying to do is, um, is help us to help me think. <laughs> I think there's some very particular sort of systemic features of today's media environment. And I'm not sure they do make it easier for us to think. I think we have, um, I think it's possible to ca ca categorize or to characterize today's media environment as one of Can you massive. break those down? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna see if I can see if I can see if I can do that. I mean, I suffer from information overload. I think everybody does. There are so many different sources of information, so many different contrasting, conflicting, contradictory bits of information that we that we come at. 
I always feel behind. I always feel like I've never got to the end of the newspaper. You know what I mean? What we want on Palia is to have a place in which all the arguments for gun control and all the arguments for gun rights are cleanly and calmly and dispassionately described so that we have a kind of a, a starting point to understand not only what we think, but also what the other side thinks. Why? Because working out what you think is a good thing, being free and feeling in control of your own ideas is a useful thing. Being able to hear the other side is super important if you're trying to build a democratic consensus. And the third reason, of course, is hopefully you, you find solutions, right? If you're constantly starting from scratch and you're screaming basic arguments against me and I'm screaming basic arguments against you, you're never going to get to a point where you may start finding ways of taking the conversation forward. So those, I suppose, are the three key reasons that we're trying to, what we, how we want to intervene in terms of civil discourse on, with Palia. What captured the world of, opinion, of opinions versus the world of, let's say, like this is a controversial word at this point, but facts. Like what's valuable about an opinion and how do you make that segmentation? Great question. So there's already a, there's already a, a, a beautiful knowledge project which is trying to capture the world of facts and they do a pretty good job and thank you, Jimmy Wales. And long may that continue, uh, this great extraordinary product of the internet. Um, that is Wikipedia. They do an amazing job. They've developed spectacular systems to identify what kind of counts as a fact and how you deal with a fact. Their idea about neutrality, their idea of giving due weight to information is fabulously important, useful, um, and useful for us as well. But there are lots of people who've intervened in the fact uh, debate, right? And ever since um, we started thinking about fake news or misinformation or post-truth and all these other things, you know, many, many media organizations have jumped into this space to try and bolster our idea of consensus around fact. And they do an amazing job. But they're out there. One of the things that you see with, with the whole post-truth fake news stuff is actually that a lot of the most unfair representations, the most untrue representations are in fact dealing in facts. So I'll take an, an, an unpleasant example. Toby Robinson, who runs the English Defence League in the UK, Stephen Yaxley Lennon, I think his name is really, um, he tweets all the time about Asian grooming gangs and awful things that Muslims do in the UK, etc, etc. Most of what he tweets is factually correct. It's just wildly disproportionate, totally unfair, entirely out of context. So context framing is just as important in terms of building out an idea of what reality looks like as, as the actual data around what counts as fact or what counts as not fact. So we, Palia is in, in no way relativistic. We truly believe in truth and we believe absolutely in facts and measurable evidence and everything else. And we want to bolster all that. But actually, we also have to bear in mind that um, the framing is just as important when it comes to discourse, when it comes to narrative, when it comes to understanding the world around us. So that's one. And then the other reason that um, we're excited about opinion is precisely because the, the, the areas... Of, of the world which do not have clear answers are where we do all our work. It's where we're, it's how we build the future. It's deciding what we're gonna do about, right? it's an argument that we, that we formulate who we wanna be, 
what we want to be, what states we want to live in, what kind of policies we want to build. And those things are all about opinion and they're all about framing. They're all about values, which are by their very nature, not absolute. What do you make of the fact that some opinions are dangerous? So let's say Nazism, for instance, or the anti-vaxxer movement. Yeah. So Palia's project is to platform all the most common ideas about everything, which means that we do have to platform some terrible ideas. What we have, uh, what we're in the process of coming up with now is a system to mark them. So one, there are ideas which are just straightforwardly wrong, right? So anti-vaccination, they're just wrong. And as I said before, we believe in facts. So there are markers on Parlier explaining this is a false information, be careful, etc., etc. We We had a, there was a, a map on Parlier about conspiracy theories linked to uh, coronavirus, right? What are the conspiracy theories around the coronavirus? And every single one of those had a disclaimer, which was, you know, the WHO says, et cetera, et cetera, please do not think that this is, you know, the prediction of some 18th century Bulgarian mystic. So we flag all opinions which are straightforwardly untruthful. But yeah, there are also opinions which are profoundly distasteful and extremely dangerous. So Nazism for one, you know, there's all this race science which has popped back up now etc we want to we want to platform these ideas we have to because lots of people believe in them but what we want to make sure is that um they're given we're giving very very clear warnings about about the fact that they're dangerous about the fact that they are often untrue etc etc what about so let me try to phrase this uh the right way so do you think uh hierarchy of opinions is valid do you think someone's opinion might have more weight than someone else's because of, let's say, their credentials or their background? I think that some people make arguments much better than others. And so you can formulate arguments and formulate opinions in infinitely more sophisticated ways, right? And in certain issues, which require expertise to be informed about, very obviously, the view of Dr. Fauci is more sophisticated than mine or than the American president's. Uh, he's just more informed. So yes, absolutely believe in a hierarchy of, um, of expertise. So that's, I think, that's, that's, I think, fundamental. So one, there is the hierarchy of expertise around, around opinions. And then two, there is this mere question of being able to make opinions in a more articulate way than others. And that's, that's a different game. What do you think media is doing right now to the public uh, discourse? From where I'm sitting, and I'm, we're speaking about expertise, and I'm definitely not an expert, but uh, I would argue that it's becoming a lot less articulated. That's interesting. I'm a great optimist about the media ecosystem today. It's cheaper than ever to make content. It's cheaper than ever to go to market. Um, I see huge opportunities for niche media publications all over the world. People are more and more willing to pay for content on the internet, which is great, which means that small publications can exist. So on the one hand, I'm super optimistic. On the other, it's one thing making great content, and the other thing is distributing it. And the big, the, the big distributors of content on the internet remain the platforms. So Facebook, huge, obviously, Twitter, and Google. 
Google, not just because of search rankings, but also because of YouTube. And there are major, major structural problems with all of those platforms, as we know. So there's, 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 there's some fundamental issues around the distribution piece there. And then the other key piece to describe the media environment that we live in is this idea of information overload. I certainly feel like I'm constantly playing catch up. I think many people do. And I think there are some not necessarily terribly positive responses to that feeling of information overload. On the one hand, you know, when you're drowning in information, one response is, this, is the apathetic one. Ugh, I, I'll never figure out climate change. Someone else can figure out climate change and I'll just follow them, which is not terribly good. It's better than the conspiratorial one, which is, I don't really understand climate change. There's got to be a simple answer to this. And it's always the Jews or the Irish or the homosexuals or the deep state or, or, or whatever it is. That's not good either. But, but there's this other, I suppose, key feature of information overload and that push towards apathy or conspiracy or the fact that we never feel like we've read all the same stuff as everybody else. We, we live in these peculiar information silos maybe is maybe it's difficult to believe in a kind of reality consensus that we all live in the same place and that we're all consuming the same information that we all have a same the same sense of what the world is how it's working and when there were three or four big national newspapers or two tv channels you know in a country everybody was sort of involved in the same idea of what the state was about and what was going on that doesn't exist anymore so I feel like lots of us wander around wondering whether we do share sort of reality with the person opposite us on the bus whenever we go back on a bus. And that's problematic as well. So this sort of fracturing sense of reality or consensus around reality, I think, is, is, is problematic. And maybe it accelerates the kind of polarization that we were talking about earlier. So a part of what Parley is doing uh, is directly tackling this by trying to help people figure out where they stand. What are people who can use Parlia to just back what they think? So instead of starting from a question, they'll start from an answer and use Parlia to sort of back that answer. Is that something you think about? Yeah, completely. And I recently saw a beautiful tweet about this, which, which was saying, it's too long to, too, too long to explain, but, but sorry, I'll back up. So let me answer that question again. Yes, absolutely. We think about this all the time. It's almost impossible to, to change somebody's mind with facts. There is lots of evidence suggesting that, in fact, our opinions are reinforced when we are attacked. And when we are attacked with facts, we fight back even harder. So, yeah, of course, of course, that's right. We're not in the business of changing people's minds. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to map the world's opinions. And what we're also trying to do is to create a space where people at least very, I mean, very explicitly see that the opinion that they have is at least contested. Is that there are, there are alternative views around this opinion and those views are clearly explained to them. Hopefully what that does is it makes those views a little bit less threatening. And therefore, when I'm not in the business of changing your mind and convincing you the world is flat or the world is square. Or I'm just in the business of reminding all of us that there are many different ways of viewing the world. Then if Parlia is as successful uh, as you want it to be, and definitely I want it to be, then 
you'd be in a position or in the best position possible to teach opinion-making frameworks or sense-making mechanisms. How do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the reason I hesitate is that we're, we're very, very early doors ourselves. We spent a long time trying to figure out our own taxonomy. It's a question position argument. Does God exist? Yes, because. So we're at super early days ourselves. It's really difficult. And I think in terms of sense-making, it's certainly an area which we're really interested in. So we are interested in helping arguments all the way through to their logical conclusions. But I'm really also interested in why people think things, not whether necessarily those things are right, but why. Why is it that you like pink and I like purple? Because maybe it's neurological, maybe it's, maybe it's genetic, maybe it's um, nurture, maybe my mother loved me more than your lover loved, mother loved you. I, goodness knows. So trying to get into the whys uh, and that fundamental meta layer above the opinions, the rational articulations themselves, that's where we want to go. So do you think Parley will be able to build, let's say, patterns out of decisions, like certain type of people thinks a certain way? That's what we hope. And what I'm really hoping that we're able to do is to go, ah, look, um, it turns out that Gons loves Burberry and Marmite and fascism. Maybe there's something that brings all these things together. And it turns out the Turi loves Marmite and fascism and potato chips. So maybe, etc. So can we start not so right now, Palia's project is clustering all the various different opinions that, are, that exist out there on the web. The project one above that is clustering the opinion tribes, right? So what, what does this particular demographic believe in and why and what does what, what does that look like so essentially we're going one level further up which is to not just look at the rational articulations themselves but also how they cluster around themselves and that i think becomes fascinating because it starts hopefully it starts opening up questions as to why people think what they do and do you think or do you hope that we would expand the range of acceptable discourse in society sort of like widening the overtone window in a sense that's interesting yeah maybe maybe it does do that my sense is that actually over the course of the last few years we have massively expanded the space of acceptable discourse right you describe the overton window that, that box in which we are able to talk about stuff but actually you look at the internet now and it looks like there's lots of different overton windows there's there's a there's an overton window for every tribe Right? If, you're, if you're on the hard left, then that Overton window is way over there. And if you're on the hard right, it's a completely different thing. So how do, we, how do we allow all these things to exist in the world? How do we treat all these opinions with respect, at least? And respect, why? Respect because they are at least sincerely held by other humans. Now, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. On the contrary, um, you know, we didn't have the women's liberation movement because... Um, a whole bunch of people said, yeah, you know what? Thinking that women are less intelligent than men is perfectly okay. We should let them get on with it. No, no, we have to, we continue to fight for things that we believe, but at least we can hear the sincerity in the opposing voices. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. You gave a perfect example, which is uh, men's perspective towards uh, women, right? 
how do you think about arguments that change over time? Are you thinking some kind of version control at Parlia? That's a great question. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things which is interesting for us is mapping opinions through time. Now, you just gave a great example now of an opinion which has changed radically over the course of 100 years, right? I think women got the vote in 1919 or something. I mean, not a long time ago in the UK. But I just think of the Me Too movement and actually attitudes to power and attitudes to sex and consent have totally flipped in the last three years. So can we map that? And that would be just a beautiful thing to be able to map as well. But not just not just um, through time, but also perhaps through geography, right? Wouldn't it be interesting to look at responses or views on something like Me Too in France versus Italy versus Argentina versus the UK versus Sweden? You know, th that's going to be really interesting for us as well. So to be, to be able to sort of map opinion landscapes through time, through geography would be really fun. You were talking about geographies uh, and th something I want to make... Not really a distinction, but this is more of a question. So the idea of, of free opinions and the idea of free individuals, really, is a very Western-centric idea. Like, what do you make of the West here, right? So because to have opinions, you need to think yourself as an individual, right? <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, Gons, not only is this project super Western, it's also super old fashioned. It's like an, it's 18th century, this is 18th century liberalism, like I'm performing it. So yes, I'm, I'm aware of the, 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 the kind of Eurocentrism here. I'm reading a beautiful book by Julian Bergini called, the, I think it's called The Way the World Thinks, um, which is helping me put my ideas in their place because my God, they are from a particular place. So yes, you're right. Absolutely, that's the case. Would it, would it not be wonderful if Palia is able to start including real diversity of opinion across even something like the way we think right but actually this is this points to something which is also really important for us which is diversity you look at most of the community platforms reddit wikipedia etc they're super male and they're super white and i say this being both male and white <laughs> but fully conscious of how how problematic that is. So we need to work out and we're, we're doing everything we can to ensure that Palia is a place in which diversity isn't just accepted, but actually encouraged. We create a really properly safe place for different people who speak in different ways, who articulate opinions in different, in different forms. Uh, that's critically important to us. And, and our project will fail if we are not creating the space for that. Can you speak about some of the things that you're doing to ensure that Palia contributors are Diverse. We're really early doors now. So we Palia started in January 2020, but well, for a start, the, the the coverage of topics we're trying to keep as varied as possible. So we don't choose everything ourselves, obviously, because we're a contributor wiki. So a lot of people are spinning up different all sorts of different things. But but in areas where we can input a little bit ourselves, we're trying to keep proper diversity of content. We are in all our interactions with contributors trying to be as inclusive as possible, and which means engaging with all the contributors who join us, whatever age, whatever, what, even whatever level of English. And then what else should I say here? No, I, one of the key pieces for us is ensuring that from a content perspective, we've anchored our 
standard at a level which is what we're calling post-grad thinking, but in sort of eighth grade language. So I have a very, very clever, wonderful 13-year-old daughter. And of course, she's cleverer than everybody else I've ever met. But, but I, I'm constantly thinking, am I, are we building something which she and her friends would really be able to get stuck into and find interesting? And that means making sure the language is clear and not too pompous and we're not using too many acronyms and et cetera, et cetera. So complicated ideas because 12 year olds can deal with very complicated ideas, but rendered in a way which is properly accessible. A great way to think about that is low floors, high ceilings. So if you think about Excel, right, it's super easy to use, but then it can get really complicated real quick. Uh, I love that. Yeah, great idea. Is that a good analogy? Lovely. I will use that. That's a beautiful, <laughs> that's a beautiful, beautiful image. Low floor, high ceilings. Agreed. And well, they make beautiful, they make beautiful rooms too. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I stole it. So you can, you can steal it from me. So it's, it's all good. Speaking Excellent. of stealing and ideas and opinions, let's talk about the marketplace of ideas. The sort of the consensus view. And I know we sort of killed consensus at the beginning of our call, but the consensus view is that the best ideas win. Is that correct? I've got to believe that that is correct, given a whole series of other things, which is given safe space to articulate themselves, given sincerity and engagement, given a, f a free and fair media ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of which is true. So the answer is that in theory, yes, the marketplace of ideas is a beautiful image and a very liberal, again, 18th century one. But the truth is we now know all too much about how media works and how this media economy works, and it's just not a fair space. So it would be lovely to think that the, the best ideas always win and somehow always rise to the top and always crush out everything else. Yet the answer is they don't. Look at the 1930s and, um, and look at many other times a lot of people would say today as well. But which means two things. One. We, you've, got to, we, you've got to try and help create environments in which those great ideas can rise to the surface. And that's exactly what Parley is trying to do by sharing them, explaining them in as calm and as descriptive and simple a way as possible. So that's one. So creating um, places for content, however controversial to exist, that's one. And two, you've got, to, you, you've got to get into, you've got to get fighty as well. You've got to get into the fight, right? Which means you, know, you have to learn how you distribute information you've got to understand how google ranks pages you've got to understand how to fight on twitter you've got to understand you know you've got to build partnerships you've got to build relationships you've got to you've got to get stuck into the fight this is not we are not an ivory tower project we are we are, we want to we want to play in the real world that's something that will stick with me we want to play in the real world because if you think about it should those things be prerequisites to playing? Like learning how the media works, learning how Google works. Uh, and I, I don't think I have an opinion just yet, but I'm, I'm asking, should they be prerequisites? Like learning about Google, learning about media, should they be prerequisites for the marketplace of ideas? Or is that just a version of not the best idea, but rather the loudest? Yeah, and great question. So I think the truth here is that while it's unfair and while it's not ideal and while it would be wonderful for all of us to exist in this beautiful world in which the best ideas fought it out on some higher plane and then we sort of declared themselves to us, 
we've all got to get stuck into this thing. And so, and everybody does. So we, 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 we're, all, we're all out there trying to advance the ideas that we think are most interesting. There's something beautiful in that process itself because it's actually quite generous. Trying to convince other people to join us means that we care about those other people. We're trying to bring them with us. And that's, that's, a, that's a glorious thing. If it's a messy and sometimes a bit bloody, not ideal, but um, we're all involved in it together. What's the most ambitious version of Parlia? The most ambitious version of Parlia is that we are a, we're the place that you go when you ask an open-ended question on the internet. We want to be, you know, when, when you say, does God exist? We want to provide you with the answers to that. When you, when you Google a piece of news and you're not sure what the responses are around it, or you Google a piece of news, we want to surface there for you to be able to go, ah, okay, this is, these are the various different positions around it. We want to we want to try and fix Q and A. I suppose we want to we want to move into that space. We think you know Quora's done an amazing job for a particular kind of stuff. Yahoo Answers did a whole bunch of good stuff too, but we think maybe there's a new iteration that's possible. That's that's where we want to be. And a big part of that is search, right? How do you think about building a company when there is almost a single point of failure, which is search? <laughs> great question and and the answer is we just we have to keep we so couple 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 of things there is a single point of failure which is search but but that single point of failure is impacted by a whole bunch of stuff one obviously you know whether your site is built in the right way but there's a that's kind of table stakes truly it's are you providing intellectual satisfaction to people when they come to you so my only concern is making sure that I'm providing that intellectual satisfaction. I'm giving you the answers when you come. Because if I'm giving you the answers, Bing, Google, Yahoo, everyone will see that. And we will, will de facto become the place that, well, this a safe place for, 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 for search engines to send their users. That's what we need to become. One last question, and I'll let you go. Um, the heresy of speaking your mind. Does this phrase resonate with you? No, walk it through, walk, open it up for me. What, is, what do you mean by that? So let, let's see if I can open it up to you in the right way. Where this comes from, from a concern that right now, one of the most dangerous things someone can do for their life, their career, and sometimes their, like even their family can be speaking their mind. We've seen cancel culture, we've seen Twitter mobs, we've seen people who don't respect due process and take justice in their own hands. And there are a bunch of different social things that play into this. But I think we like for some people at least, we've reached a point in which speaking your mind is heretic, I'd say. I think that's a terrible thing. Um, you know, what I said, I think right at the beginning was how valuable it is to surface all these ideas. And in fact, for, the, for, the, for this you know, famous the mar marketplace of ideas to play out, these ideas have to surface so that we can, I mean, when they're terrible, let's kill them, but let's look at them. And as I think we were also saying, you know, the, the last few years or so has seen a 
return of a whole bunch of ideas that we thought we'd killed off, you know, the, the hard right, for example, or, you know, deep misogyny, all these things that we thought we'd packaged away, we'd gotten rid of. Maybe we hadn't. And um, therefore, letting these things surface so that we can better argue against them is, I think, fundamentally important. Otherwise, we're kind of lying to ourselves. We live in a, exactly, this kind of fake consensus culture, which doesn't serve anybody because we, because, you know what, because another word for consensus is groupthink. And groupthink is a bad thing. How do you kill the idea without killing the messenger? Or sh should we? <laughs> so, do you know the? Do you know, I think it's called the Planck theory, which is that which has come up come up with by Max Planck, the the, the great scientist in the fifties. He said, scientists don't change their mind; they just die, and a new generation of scientists with different ideas become professors. So actually, maybe to your point, maybe for bad ideas to die, maybe the people who own them have to die as well. Hopefully they're not killed. Maybe they just die out. But, but we also all have examples, personal examples, our own examples of moments when our, our, our minds really have changed, right? When we have upgraded, when we have thought things through again. We're speaking about Me Too recently. Sometimes actually the process of changing minds or changing ideas is not so much taking your idea and breaking it Uh, a bit rationally it's helping you see things that you hadn't seen about that idea before and i think me too is a classic example of this i think probably most of us were were aware of a whole bunch of nasty things going on i'm speaking particularly about men who didn't experience this but having all this information surfaced seeing how deep how systemic these issues were suddenly made us allowed us helped us rethink our understanding of sexual politics and so i think that changed culture and in changing culture it changed a whole bunch of us in the way that we think about a lot of stuff so yes i think that you can change ideas without killing people off although killing people off is often more efficient <laughs> that's that's a perfect note to end on thank you so <laughs> much <laughs> of course why not <laughs> exactly uh thank you so much for your time Tori, where can people uh, go to find more about Parlia and hopefully contribute? Fantastic. I, I would enjoy this conversation a great deal. I hope it's the first of many. Um, Parlia.com, P-A-R-L-I-A.com. And you'll find me on Twitter at Turi, T-U-R-I. Perfect. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the C-Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to C-Table.com. C-Table is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.